Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the gift of this day, the gift of these moments that we have together. Father God, in a, in a world that, that races so quickly um, and invites us to push on toward the next thing, I'm grateful for these moments where we can slow down just a bit. And I'm struck by the idea that we might ponder anew together what you can do in this world. And Father God, you know those that walked into the room this morning at uh, the height of joy. And what they ponder about what you can do might be a beautiful picture. I pray that for those of us that that's the case, you would give us voices to proclaim more loudly. But you also know that there are some of us that walked into the room this morning closer to the depth of despair. I pray, God, that you would make yourself known. You promise that when we gather like this, you're here. I pray that we would know that to be true. And the knowledge of that truth would change us as we move through this time. So we pray that your word would change our hearts and our hearts would be changed for your service today. And we pray this in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So a few years ago, I was in Tennessee with my brother-in-law. He, was, uh, he is a veterinarian. He was living in Tennessee uh, on a cattle farm caring for a herd of cattle there. And so while I was there, it was winter, it was freezing cold. But he said, hey, I've got some work to do with the, with the baby calves, the little cute baby calves. Do you want to help with the cute little baby calves? And I was like, of course, quality time with my brother-in-law, whom I love, uh, and, uh, and caring for the baby calves. That sounds so great. So we go down and, and start putting uh, boots and hats. Again, it was so cold and, and overalls and all the things you need to put on. And I realized, man, he was so smart to get the commitment before he explained what was actually going to happen out there. So let me give you the rundown of what had to happen. We had to move a couple of dozen full-grown big cows and some little ones from one field to another field. That was a very difficult task. And then from there, we had to take certain of those cows into this metal pen area so that he could send them through this chute and do a vaccination, tag them and all this stuff, uh, which was almost impossible, uh, by the way. And then uh, the, on top of all of that, he throws this one as we're heading out. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm psyched up for this. I think I can do it. He goes, oh yeah, also, uh, this is important to know, these uh, mothers have never been separated from their calves before, so they're going to be real mad about all this. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. So what am I supposed to, what am I doing? Am I just like the cheerleader? Do you want me to like stay in the truck? What am I supposed to do? And he's like, no, 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 you've got a real important job. I, I can do most of it myself, but there's one thing. Because the moms are going to be agitated, I need you to keep them distracted. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. And I, I was... Um, I was concerned that I wouldn't look uh, manly enough or something. To, like, I didn't want to ask him how to do that, so I decided to make it up as I went. And so imagine this scene. My brother-in-law, who's a veterinarian, trained, knows how to work with the animals, is inside this uh, metal enclosure, the safety of this metal enclosure with little, little baby calves just frolicking around. And I'm outside with 2,000-pound angry mothers who are snorting and spitting everywhere, and I'm supposed to keep them distracted. So, so I start with one of these like over here, like, a, like the art of deception. I was like, no, 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 over here. And they were like, no, you're not that smart guy. And I'm like, okay, cool. So that didn't work. So I found a stick. I thought this would be good. And I just started, wa <laughs> I started waving this stick at the cows, like, and, you know, like making noise. And they were like, it's a stick. I'm not scared of a stick. And so finally I was like, I've got it. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I, and I, I get kind of close with the stick and I go, 
get on up out of here, because I thought that's what cowboys are supposed to say. And that didn't work either. It actually got them more mad. And at one point, the moms are starting to get so mad, and I hear my brother-in-law inside the safety of a pen. Remember, metal, very safe in there. I'm outside. He goes, hey, man, I was just joking the whole time. Um, you can't get in the way of an angry cow. It'll kill you if it, if it runs into you. So you're going to have to get inside the pen now. Okay, two things in this moment. One, I realized, very importantly, my brother-in-law is a jerk. And he thinks putting my life in danger is a real giggle fest. Number two, I had never been so thankful for a gate in my life to get into that pen. It was one of those moments, if you're scared of spiders, you know this moment where you're walking, just doing your day, and you see a spider, and you're like, ha, oh, there's a spider, and then the next second, you're somehow in another room, and you've like jumped, you've teleported somehow into another space to get away from the spider. It was like that. I had somehow just, I was inside the, the pen as fast as I possibly could be. I was so thankful for that gate. We're beginning the year in the life of Jesus by, by looking at what Jesus says about himself. And he does it very specifically in the Gospel of John through seven I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate, which we'll look at today. I am the shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're looking at these because it's important to see what Jesus says about himself even over what other people say about him. But as Jesus starts to make these statements in his ministry, people start to follow. They start to ask all kinds of different questions. But in chapter 8, someone asks the question. Someone asks, who are you? He looks at Jesus and he says, who are you? That's what this series is about. That's what we're doing together in this series. We're trying to answer that question. We're trying to look at Jesus and get an answer to that question. So in chapter 10... Jesus answers the who are you question this way. It's in your bulletin, or if you have your Bible, you can turn to it, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has this way of not giving us space to just dismiss him. The way he says what he says means we actually have to deal with it. We can't just go, well, whatever. He starts this way. He, very truly, I tell you, is how it's interpreted here. But uh, in the original language, it's, it's actually amen, amen. He says, amen, amen. I am the gate for the sheep. Now, normally you wouldn't begin a statement this way. In rabbinic culture of the day, you would make a statement and you would end that statement with amen. And then the people, if they agreed with your statement, would respond amen. Similar to the, the modern carryover of how we pray. Oftentimes we'll pray just like we did a moment ago. And someone will say amen. And then everyone else, if they agree with what's been said, will say amen. Jesus, however, puts the amen at the front, and not just one, but two. Anytime there's repetition in the scripture, it's for emphasis. In the ancient culture, it would be emphasis. Amen, amen. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm telling you the truth. This is what is to be believed. So what's happened just previous to this statement is Jesus has been at the 
Feast of the Tabernacles. We talked about that last week. But it's this Jewish festival where everyone would come together to remember that God saves. That was the whole purpose of the festival. Let's spend days just remembering that God saves. Specifically, that he saved us from slavery in Egypt. He guided us through the desert and he led us to entering into the promised land of safety. That's what's talked about in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. But the whole festival was around remembering that truth. The catalyst for that happening, for the Israelites wandering through the desert toward the safety of the promised land, was God shows up to a guy named Moses. Moses was a prince turned shepherd. And God says in a very strange way to Moses, go free my people because they weren't made to be imprisoned. No one was made to be imprisoned, not by others, not by their sin, not by fear for that matter. So go and make sure they find their way to freedom. And Moses says, I don't know if they're even gonna listen to me if I show up. Who am I, on whose authority am I going to free these people and, and lead them? And God says in Exodus three, verse four, I am. Tell them I am is sending you. A lot of our scriptures render it, I am who I am. I actually think the best construction of this from, from the Hebrew is, I will be who I am. That's God's response to Moses. Who's sending me? I will be who I am. I'm the God who hears the cries of the oppressed. I'm the God who doesn't leave people alone in their time of need. I'm the God who guides people to safety. I will be who I am. I will be consistent with my character. Go tell them that and tell them to trust me. I am. So when Jesus uses the phrase, I am, he is very specifically telling the people that are listening, that's me. Jesus is saying, I am the God who guides people to safety. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Now, previously in the Gospel of John, Jesus has fed thousands of people, and then he proclaims, I'm the bread of life. And then he goes up to the Temple Mountain, and in the light of the lamps of the temple courtyard, he says, I'm the true light of the world. And the thing is, I know I need bread to live, so that's a helpful illustration. I know I need food to live if Jesus is our sustenance. I get it. I need light to guide my steps. I need a guide. So him being the light of the world, that makes sense. But a gate? Who needs a gate? I mean, that one time that I just told you, I needed a gate. That was very important to me. But other than that, I've been pretty okay without a gate. Who needs a gate? Sheep do. In Jesus' day, sheep were a major part of the economy. They were very common in the landscape of ancient Palestine. You would see them all over the place. And so people had a pretty good working knowledge of sheep. We probably don't in our non-agrarian culture. But in that time, people would have known sheep, they, they, they flock, they, 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 they follow the sheep in front of them. That's just kind of how they act. So even if the lead sheep is headed in a, in a bad direction, the rest of the sheep will usually still follow because of this strong uh, flocking characteristic. It's actually really common still today. If you wonder what sermon prep looks like for me, I spent a pretty good amount of time looking for examples of this uh, flocking characteristic in sheep. And believe it or not, there's a lot of people very interested in this. There's a lot on the internet about sheep and flocking. I found this one story. It's actually really sad, um, so I shouldn't be giggling, but I am. Uh, in 2006, in eastern Turkey, a sheep uh, went off a 40-foot ravine, just kind of wandered off and maybe slipped, maybe fell, maybe it was just like, that's it, I can't, so it goes off. So that's sad enough, right? 
400 sheep followed that one sheep off of the ravine. All 400 died. Uh, They just followed. They just kept following into the ravine. So it doesn't seem like a compliment when Jesus calls us sheep. But I actually don't think it's a derogatory use of the word at all. I think it's a casual observation. I think we actually are sheep. I think Jesus was just observing people. We're sheep. Want proof? MC Hammer Pants. (laughs) Fidget spinners. Beanie Babies. Starbucks. Instapots. Gingham shirts on worship band members. This is what we do. We we follow, guys. A couple years ago, uh, there was a... Uh, a, a Dunkin' Donuts opened near the Herndon campus. And I don't, want, I don't know what happened. Those were dark days at Summit. Uh, people that normally had moderately balanced diets were, were eating like blueberry cake donuts for breakfast and then brownie batter infused donuts for lunch and they were chasing them with some of those munchkins. It was like, that's all people were doing. And I was actually really interested in like, who started this? Who was the lead sheep that led us all astray into the Dunkin' Donuts thing? And I don't know the answer definitively, but I do know this. Kaylee Newkirk had a really extensive knowledge of the uh, menu of, of Dunkin' Donuts at the time, and she also told me about this thing. There was a secret society of donut eaters. It wasn't even like there was a common donut thing. There was a secret society. It's called Donut Friday, where a group of people would get together, they'd buy a dozen donuts, and that's all they would eat all day. We are sheep. I'm telling you, we just follow, and we go out enticed by whatever's in front of us, and hopes that whatever we're following or whoever we're following, that will lead to life. That's what we do. We're sheep. We follow, hopefully, to head to life. But the thing is, if we're not careful, our lives can actually become defined by pursuits of things more costly than donuts, but no more life-giving. So for animals that exhibit this type of behavior, protection is needed. Protection, if you're a sheep, comes in two forms. One, you need someone to guide you to the right place. That's a shepherd. Jesus does call himself the good shepherd. We'll talk about that next week. But protection comes secondly in needing a pen for protection with a gate. Jesus says, I am the gate. The, the pen would protect the sheep from, from predators that wanted to get them, but also from them wandering away towards something that's not healthy. What Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the gate, is he's saying, I'm the way through which we can enter into safety and protection and life. I have a question for you. When you head out to work tomorrow morning, when you leave your home, what are you looking for? Maybe you're looking for the fastest route to work, probably. Short line at Starbucks, probably. Looking to avoid that one coworker that needs a little too much attention, almost certainly, right? Those are all things we're looking for. But, but what I mean is, if you go, to, go out to work tomorrow, if you work from home or if you stay at home with children or you're a student, when you set out on your daily work, what are you after? What are you looking for? Providing for your family, that could be a good answer, one that we often give, but many of us make more than what it takes to do that, yet we still go. Maybe it's purpose, or significance. Those can be good reasons as well. But my guess is that to a lesser or greater degree in all of us, part of us head out the door, dive into our work to find value, to find life in someone or something telling us that we matter. Is that what we're looking for? 
And before you think, you know what, that isn't really my struggle. Um, this is probably a sermon for the person sitting next to me, but this isn't really for me. I don't really struggle with that. Work is kind of fine, but I know it has value. I have value. I've got a good balance there. Before you think you're exempt from this, have a seven-year-old ask you what you do at work. I promise you, you'll start to realize this might be an issue that needs attention. My youngest came up to me a couple weeks ago. He was getting ready for school, and he says, uh, he says, hey, Dad, you going to work today? I was like, yeah, man, you're going to school. I'm going to work. We're going to put our day in. That's what Abbots do. Let's go, right? And then he follows that up with this question. He goes, so when you go to work, are you just going to, like, sit there? <laughs> I was crushed and immediately thought, uh, okay. I can defend myself. I'm an adult. I'm well thinking. No, Josie, I've got lots of things to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna say thank you to some people. That's important. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read and write some things. That's that's all very, very valuable. And I think when I got kind of to the end of the list of pastory things I had to do, he, I kind of closed it out by saying, I've got a lot of important things to do. Something, something to that effect. And he was standing there stunned. I think he was just like wanting to connect with what I do in any given day. But I felt personally attacked by the question. Look, work matters. It's part of our design. It's part of how God has created us. It's what he invites us into to move his good creation forward. But the thing is, our, our, our culture, and potentially us as individuals, we, we take that truth and we buy into a lie as a result of it. We buy into this lie that, that what we produce is directly proportional to our value and increased production and increased possession equals increased safety. But the thing is, all you have to do is ask anybody who's been downsized and they know that's a lie. And Christian or not, we put our faith in that because we buy into that lie that it's like increased production, increased possession, that's increased safety. So I'm gonna buy into that lie, I'm gonna put my faith in that and our culture leads the way and we follow the idea because we think it'll lead to life. And believe it or not, science, let alone Jesus, says it's not true, and it's not leading to life at all. Compared to 55 years ago, Americans have twice as many cars, eat out twice as often. As a nation, we fill 1.8 billion, that's billion with a B, 1.8 billion square feet of personal storage space. That's the storage for the things we own, but we don't have a place for. The median income is at a record high, $59,000 a year annually. Yet, 14% of people that make $75,000 a year or more consider themselves underemployed. And 16 million people in the U.S. have some form of depression or depressive episodes. And let me say this. Let me hard stop for just a second. If that's you, if you're struggling, please don't struggle alone. It's you and 16 million other people. You're not alone. Please let us be a part of health and life for you. Tell someone, tell me, tell your family, tell your Summit Connect group, don't struggle alone. But these statistics, they tell us something. They tell us something in the words of David Meyer who wrote the book, The American Paradox. Compared to our grandparents, we have grown up with much more affluence, slightly less happiness, and much greater risk of depression. Our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. Why not? Because there are things in this world that promise life, but they don't deliver. That's why. And Jesus in this parable is telling us that safety, protection, life that we often go out looking for 
doesn't come from going out and getting more safety, protection, life. Actually come from entering in. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And we can hear this as a command, but it's not. It's an observation. Faith isn't a choice. What we put our faith in is. So the question is, what are we putting our faith in? In a world that steadily feeds us a message, the you you are right now is not good enough. And if any of you are like, oh yeah, sheep, you, I get it. That's a punny joke. Got it. Uh, I didn't mean it that way, uh, but someone pointed that out. So there you go. The you you are right now is not good enough. But there's hope. You can buy this. You can attain that. You can strive for this. You can look this way and you'll be better. You'll be closer to who you should be because you deserve it. That's the message. And the natural consequence of buying into that type of thinking is that we put our faith and our trust in those things we can accumulate, believing they'll deliver on that promise of life. But the thing is, there's always another thing to go after. Black Panther Lego set is the example of this in our house right now. Black Panther, the movie coming out soon, Lego has a, has a set uh, that's based on the movie. And in November, we were at Target. Parents, word of warning, uh, if you hear me say anything, any wisdom from this sermon at all, be careful taking your kids to Target because Target is a place where kids believe they can point at something, say, I want that, and it magically goes into their hands and they have it forever and it's theirs to possess. But that's not how Target works and then your kids have fits about it. So we were at uh, Target, and uh, Joe Slee says, ooh, Black Panther Lego set. I want that Black Panther Lego set. And I was like, well, you can't have that Black Panther Lego set um, because I'm a mean dad. And, uh, and he was devastated. But not to worry, Christmas was coming. And so Joe Slee started to work Black Panther Lego set into all types of casual conversation just to make sure I didn't forget that that was something he wanted, like Ralphie in the Christmas story with the Red Rider BB gun. So it'd be something like, uh, I'd be like, hey, Joe Slee, how was your day? He'd be like, good, be better if I had a Black Panther Lego set. And it's like, okay, great. And I was like, hey, buddy, what are you doing, playing football? And he's like, yeah, I'm playing football, but I'd rather be playing with a Black Panther Lego set. And it's like, okay. And then questions like, oh, where are your shoes, buddy? And he's like, I don't know, I can't remember. If I had developed the complex thinking and processing skills that are available with somebody puts together a Black Panther Lego set, maybe I'd remember, but I can't remember. I was like, okay, I get it. We didn't get in the set because Christmas was coming, so we went up to Indiana, and there's like 50 Christmases that happen up there, and we come back. He didn't get the Black Panther Lego set, but we did set up everything that he'd accumulated up in Indiana, and it filled as big as this stage. I'm not exaggerating. It was all around him. There were things everywhere. There was this Hot Wheels set that would shoot cars in the air, and it would blow up and then swing them around. It was amazing, and he sat in the middle of it, and I was like, okay, we're finally over it. We got a lot of stuff. He's, getting, he's a blessed kid. got it. But I actually walked by, and he wasn't saying it to me this time. He was just saying it to himself in the disappointment of his own sweet little heart. He was sitting there around the Hot Wheels, and he goes, Black Panther Lego set would go right here. <laughs> I still haven't gotten it for him because I'm a mean dad. But... That's consumerism. That's what it is. That's the nice word for it, consumerism. And it's cute when you're seven years old, but it can be absolutely crippling as we grow. And not to overstate the point, but the logical end of buying into this, the you you are right now isn't good enough, but there's hope you can, you can just buy this thing or get this thing and then you'll be better because you deserve it. The logical end of this is addiction. Because the pursuit of happiness, when our faith is in the things, it never ends it never relents, and that destination of life to the fullest is always out there somewhere. It's always just a little further away. I recently uh, read an interview from, uh, with Russell Brand, who is a British actor and comedian. He's had a pretty 
public battle with substance abuse and really bad relationships and uh, typical Hollywood stuff, you might think. And in the interview, he, he, he's talking about it, really centers on what he calls uh, the, the instant gratification culture and how that leads us to, to be a culture of addicts. But what really got me about the interview after kind of the intro is that he makes this statement. He says, the teachings of Christ are more relevant now than they've ever been. A quote like that will get your attention. So I continue to read, and he talks about how he's been sober for 15 years because he went through a 12-step program. An atheist friend, when he was an atheist, invited him into this 12-step program, and he started to be open to the idea that maybe God really does love him, and maybe Jesus is who he said he was. And it sent him on this journey to move toward Jesus. And so he talks about in Matthew 19, uh, the parable where, where uh, the rich young ruler uh, not the parable, but the story where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me. And he goes away devastated because he can't do it. And what Brand says, he says, this strikes at the core of us because it, it strikes at this value that we secretly hold, that money and materialism can actually cure our unhappiness. But the thing is, that value doesn't hold up. The new purchase never stays new forever. That substance never fills us up forever. The relationship never fulfills all our dreams all the time. The job never validates us all the time. And when those things fall short, when they're eventually exposed for what they are, we can either race out to find more or we can come in. Last week, we saw how Jesus exposes our religion for what it is, a costly hobby without Christ. And with this proclamation, I am the gate Jesus exposes our pursuit of happiness for what it is, a marathon with no finish line other than Christ. So what if we began every day not saying, I wish there was more, but we began every day thankful for what there is? And you know what there is? Jesus, the one who says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, saved from this never-ending, relentless marathon. And we can hear the words of, of Jesus, whoever enters through me will be saved. And we can hear those as a statement of exclusion, but they're actually far from it. They're what, as Philip Yancey calls them, a grace note for a deaf world. When Jesus is saying these words, people were already talking about who Jesus was. There's a lot of conversation back and forth. People were already starting to say, I think he's the way through which salvation is going to enter the world. We get that all the way back at the beginning of John. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And in Jesus' culture, being a good man, being a miracle worker, even disagreeing with the religious authority, that wouldn't get you killed. But claiming to be the God who frees people, that would. And it did. He did head to the cross. And he did head toward his death. But it was not for no good reason. He did it to take away the sins of the world, everything that separates us from each other, separates us from God, separates us from being the people God has called us to be and loving the people God has given us to love. He freed us up from the things that pull us apart to bring us back together. He took all of it on his back so that we don't have to have it on ours. And the extent of that offer to come into that love and that grace is extended to everyone and it leaves no one out. 
It wasn't that Jesus wasn't being clear here. The people didn't understand what he was saying. They were confused by the I am the gate thing, but it's not that he wasn't being clear. They weren't open to the idea of God's love being that big, that it would show up and do all that was needed for all people. They didn't understand because they didn't want to. And I think we do this from time to time. We choose to believe something and not believe in something, not because it's actually unbelievable. We choose not to believe in something because we really don't want to consider what might need to change in us if we do believe. There's a lot of conversation in our country right now about immigration. And it is complicated and it is challenging. And it's led us to, I think, the right place to ask questions about how we view people, who are people, and how should we think about them. And let me just say, anybody that says immigration isn't a complicated issue, they're not being fair. It is. It is a complicated issue. But let me also say this. Exclusion as a guiding principle is antithetical to the gospel. Because the gospel says that one day, in the fullness of time, when God brings everything back together, the heavens will be full of the sound of one single choir with one single voice gathered around the throne with Jesus at the center, made up of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. The responsibility of the religious leaders that Jesus was talking to was to lead and feed God's people so that they would reflect his character in the world. And they could not have imagined and were not interested in a gate that open. They liked things the way they were. Look this way, come from this background, you're welcome. Otherwise, just stay away. And they missed grace and truth. Their message was a way, but it wasn't the way. Part of what was so offensive about Jesus is how broad that invitation of whoever is. Jesus says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. This coming in and going out language is actually pretty interesting and I think it's very important. Life, if we believe Jesus, comes from entering into his love. And also, when we find it there, we're free to go out with the assurance of his grace. We come into his love, we go out with the assurance of his grace. There are other gates that we can enter into to try to find life. Maybe we're looking for relief, so we enter in through the gate of alcohol or entertainment or something else to numb us a bit. Maybe we're looking for safety, so we enter in through the gate of separation. Maybe we're looking for love, so we enter in through the gate of unhealthy physical or emotional relationships. Maybe we're looking for admiration, so we enter in through the gate of self-centered consumerism. Maybe we're looking for peace, so we enter in through the gate of self-actualization, to thine own self be true. We can enter into all types of different gates, but the test of whether something brings life is after we enter into it, when we go out, are we more sure of ourselves or less? When we go back out, when we leave those gates we enter into, when we go out into the world, do we feel more alive or less? Jesus invites us to come into the safety of his love and having done so, we can go out into the world with the assurance of his grace, the assurance that we don't have to earn our way to him. He served his way to us. And in that, we find the goal of salvation to reflect the character of Jesus out there. Do you want to know what I believe is, is one of the most subtly profound things that happens in our community? Every Sunday... People show up early. 
They show up early to, to, to do first impressions, to greet people at the door and be ready. They show up early to make coffee uh, for people so that they have something to hold on to, to feel a little more safe and like a little more like they belong here. And by the way, uh, coffee, you, like you're running this place. Like it all depends on you. So just keep up the good work uh, there. Uh, people show up early um, to, to go back into base camp and, and meet together and pray together and get prepared so that when kids walk through these doors, they can know they matter to God. People show up early. You know why? Because every single one of you matters that much. You deserve people showing up early for you, and that's what we do around here. We show up early for each other because you matter. Every week we invite people in, and every week we're sent out to notice our neighbor in need and do something about it. We're sent out to go into our workplace and create space for maybe somebody else to get the credit. We go out to find contentment in being loved by God, not in the number of zeros on the ledger line in our bank accounts. We go out to join with others in following Jesus because we can accomplish far more together than we can possibly hope to alone. We go out to do those types of things, not to earn God's love, but because we are under the protection of his love. We come in together to receive grace and truth, and then we go out, and when we go out, we can actually be satisfied, not constantly searching for more, more validation, more to consume, more to be consumed by. We can go out to love more. That's life to the fullest. And when we get swept up in that together, it's breathtaking, and it's life-giving. When Jesus says, I'm the gate. What he's doing is he's inviting us to take an honest look at the things we pursue that promise life but don't deliver. And he says, I came to save you from a thief that wants to convince you that you always have to get just a little further down the road. You gotta get just a little more for yourself and then, then one day you'll experience full life. That might look like life, but Jesus says it isn't. He says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the fullest. The truth is safety, protection, life. It comes from entering in, not from racing out. Entering into his love and his grace. And if we believe him, if we believe Jesus when he says, I've come that I might have life and have it to the fullest, I'm the gate that, that we can come into his love, it will change how we live our lives. It will change what motivates us. It will change what we long for. It'll change what we're looking for when we go to work tomorrow. It'll change who we are as a community. It will change the people around us and it almost certainly will ensure that our neighbors know something about Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being the gate, the way through which we enter into safety and protection and life. I'm grateful that we don't have to find our own way to safety, that we don't have to continue to follow and, and look after and go harder. We don't have to do those things. We can experience the fullness of life when we come into your love. And I pray that as we are held together in your love, that we would remember that that is for the purpose of us being loving. Help us remember that we are saved from the sin that tears us apart, but we are saved for displaying your character in this world. 
the world that needs us to. I pray that we find life in you and we offer life to others through you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.